Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Good afternoon, everyone. Nice to see everyone here today. Welcome to our, our guests. Having celebrated the Feast of Trumpets this past Monday, as we've heard mentioned on a couple of occasions, we now find ourselves in the middle of the fall festival season. In a few days, we'll celebrate the Day of Atonement by afflicting our souls with a 24-hour fast. It's easy for this feast to be somewhat of an afterthought. Trumpets kicks off the fall season with gusto. We've come to the end of the summer. We've been counting down for 180-odd days to get to the, the, the trumpets. I probably have that number wrong. We're anticipating the Feast of Tabernacles, but somehow we've got to get over this hump and get past the Day of Atonement and get on to the, the real feasting, which begins with the Feast of Tabernacles. And then we'll be off to the feast. However, when we look at the historical, historical background to the fall festival season, it becomes obvious that the Day of Atonement is not merely an afterthought, nor is it just a single day that we need to endure once a year before heading off to our temporary dwellings to celebrate the feast. Samuel Bakayoki, many of you have probably heard of Samuel Bakayoki. He's a Seventh-day Adventist teacher, a Seventh-day Adventist scholar, who came to disagree with his church and find value and validity in the keeping of God's holy days. He wrote a two-volume set of books, a two-volume set, entitled God's Festivals in Scripture and in History. And in volume two, which covers the fall festivals, in chapter two, he, he says this about the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets shares with the Day of Atonement two fundamental differences from the other festivals. He says this. First, both feasts were not connected with any historical or national event. They were seen as universal and most personal celebrations, a time for the individual to stand before the judgment seat of God, seeking forgiveness and cleansing. Second, both feasts were observed, not like the other festivals, in a spirit of exalted joyfulness, but in a spirit of intense moral and spiritual introspection, as befits a plaintiff coming before the supreme judge and ruler of the universe, appealing for his life. And then in chapter 4, dealing with the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, he says this, The Day of Atonement represented for the Jews the climax of ten days of intense self-examination and repentance. They were known as the Days of Awe or the days of repentance. It is noteworthy that unlike other holy days, the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement were not linked to remembrance of historical events. These holy days were strictly a time for people to make a thorough assessment of their lives. The last time, last time I spoke, we talked about the restorative power of festival keeping and how God separates us from our daily lives, from the world, the world in which we are to be evangelizing, the world in which we are to be preaching the gospel, and separate us to celebrate the festivals. Today, what I would like to do is take a look back and a look forward at the keeping of the fall feasts 
and show why it is important to see that it is an entire season of festivals, not four distinct celebrations, but an entire festival season. We simply should not come to the Feast of Trumpets, as we did on Monday, for one day and then revert back for nine days or eight days into our regular mindset and then show up on atonement for one day and then revert back for a few days and then show up for the Feast of Tabernacles. We prepare to celebrate the feasts. We kick it off with trumpets. And then we need to remain in festival mode right through until the end of the last great day. We're going to take a historical look and we're going to take a future look at why this is important for us to understand. Let's begin in John chapter 10. John chapter 10. As we turn to John 10, setting the stage, we see the Feast of Tabernacles being kept in John chapter 7, and a continuation of the last great day, as you follow the timeline, in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. Verse 22 is where the setting changes. And we see this. Now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now I bring this up to make note that here he mentions the Feast of Dedication. We know this to be modern-day Feast of Hanukkah. The Festival of Lights, a Jewish memorial of the purification of the temple by the Maccabeans. During the intertestamental period, we saw the uh, summary of the youth study over the course of the last year. Uh, and during the youth study, it was posted on the wall. We see last week we studied Malachi. And we come to, as, as was pointed out by one of the young people, where God goes, chooses to go silent for a few hundred years. It was during this time that we had the Maccabean revolt after the pollution of the temple by Antiochus Epiphanes. And again, this took place during the silent intertestamental period. And this was a Jewish civil celebration. It's important to understand that. This was a Jewish civil celebration. Civil because it was important to their history as a people. And civil because it was not consecrated as holy by God in the pages of his word. But it provides a setting. It provides some historical background that the Jews did keep it. But again, it was a civil, much like Purim. It was a civil celebration important to their history as a people. But not holy as consecrated by God. However, it's clear by its inclusion that it is part of the setting and that it was a day kept by the Jews. The same can be said about these days of awe that Bacchioki talks about. The Jews kept these days of awe. They saw the beginning of the fall festival season from day one to day ten as a unit, as a festival called the days of awe. And we're going to see why that's important. And what we can learn from that. Go with me to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. Joel 
Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like the morning clouds spread over the mountain, a people come great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and and like swift steeds, so they run. With a noise like chariots over mountaintops they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Before them, the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation, and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? And Joel here presents what the day of the Lord, what the coming of Christ will be like. He's not coming with peace. He's coming with a sword. Now, for us, it will be different, as we heard about on Monday. For us, when the last trumpet sounds, we will rise as first fruits, whether we are dead and saints resting, or whether we are living at that time, and we follow the risen saints to meet Christ in the air, as we've sung about and read about, and we settle back with Christ to this earth. But these prophecies, as we've just read in the first 11 chapters of Joel, are what Christ's second coming will be like. It's how God sort of reveals what it might be like, what it will be like, how he tries to describe it, what it will be like when Christ comes. And we see that these days, the days we know, the days of the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement are made holy by God. But what can we learn about here in Joel about their connection? especially in light of our understanding of the fulfillment of these days in God's plan of salvation. And as we read Joel 2, we just read the first 11 verses. Hold your place there, and let's go to Matthew 24. Let's go to Matthew 24. As we get a glimpse of what the coming of Christ will be like. the fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets. Verse 27 of Matthew 24. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And here, 
you can turn your pages back to Joel 2. Here Christ himself, not just through the prophet Joel, but here he himself warns that at first, his second coming will not be one of peace. At first. When he first comes, it will not be a coming of peace. So in light of this expectation, the one that Joel presents, the one that Christ himself presents in the Gospels, let's continue in verse 12 of Joel chapter 2. And we see that God provides an action plan to his people in light of all that we are expecting to happen when Christ comes and what we expect it to be like. Now, therefore, says the Lord, in light of everything we've just said, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? A grain offering and a drink offering for the, for the Lord your God? Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his, go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. And do not give your heritage to reproach, that the nation should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? We see God's expectation is to turn back to him at this time. His message, as he comes on the Feast of Trumpets, is to turn back to him. To turn back to him. Because as we heard in the youth study, that's what his message is all about. That is why he is here. He's not here to punish, ultimately. He is here to make a family. And we see here, as we read this action plan that God has provided, in light of all that's going to be, all that the world is going to be like at the day of the Lord, at his second coming, to blow the trumpet, to consecrate a fast, and to call a sacred assembly. Bakayoki noted that there was no historical or national event associated historically with the Feast of Trumpets and with the Day of Atonement. Not like Passover, not like the spring or the fall, the fall harvest festivals, the giving of the law, the fall of the walls of Jericho on the last day of unleavened bread, the passing through the Red Sea, etc. That some of the other festivals have historical associations with them. So we can see through the pen of Joel how, the, how historically trumpets and atonement can be connected. Blow the trumpet, call a sacred fast. Gather the people. Have a sacred assembly. We can see how in the absence of events to, to historically honor the other holy days, that these two, without, without any events associated with them, would be connected. And we can see that here through the pen of Joel. Let's go to Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3. We've been here in recent sermons about festival preparation, but let's look at it again. Ezra chapter 3, in light of what we're trying to talk about here today specifically. Ezra chapter 3 and verse 1. 
and we won't go into the historical details. I was presented through the youth study today, the review. Ezra chapter 3 and verse 1. And when the seventh month had come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Joshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. No fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries. They set the altar on its bases, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening burnt offerings. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for, for new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. So while they were learning this, we see how, as it's described by Ezra, that they kept the specific holy days that were consecrated. But there was so much more to the story. that they, this, was, this was a seemingly a month-long venture. A month-long venture. Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 8. That just sort of sets the stage a little bit here. Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 8 and see a little bit more. A number of decades later, In the storyline, we come to Nehemiah chapter 8. And we're going to begin, as it is likely aligned in your, in your Bible, with the last verse of chapter 7, the second half of the last verse of chapter 7, because that provides an introduction into chapter 8. And we read, When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. Now, all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in the, f- the front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in the front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and the women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So we see here the seventh month had come. They gathered together as a people to hear the word of God read, just like God had commanded, as it says to, to the, their, the holy man, Moses, that God had commanded to them. They are now obeying that, and they start on the first day of the seventh of the month to hear God's word read. Drop down to verse 9. Skip some of those details between verses 4 and 8. You feel free to read them on your own. Verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to the Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. We're still on day one. It is still the the 
seven, the first day of the seventh month that was consecrated as holy time by God. And as we remember from the youth study and from the narrative from the entire year, this was made holy from a creation, Genesis 1, verse 14. But be still, verse 11, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. So this is the end of day one, the Feast of Trumpets, as we celebrated on Monday. Verse 13, now on the second day, the second day is not a holy day, but it is the second day of the seventh month. The heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, again, not a consecrated day, but they were still together, with the priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house, or in their courtyards, or in the courts of the house of God, and in the open square of the water gate, and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths, and they were ready for the Feast of Tabernacles. But that preparation took place on day two of the seventh month. You can't just make a booth and go gather all of these things and show up and do it all on, on the 15th day and be ready for the feast. Their celebration, their commemoration of this started in preparation on day two when they, re- when they read the scriptures here. And they discovered more feasts. So here we see a connection from the Feast of Trumpets to Tabernacles immediately on day two of the seventh month. No mention here specifically of atonement, but they stayed past day one to continue hearing the law read. Let's now go to Leviticus chapter 16. And look specifically at the Feast of Atonement. But we're going to look at the Feast of Atonement in terms of the entire festival season. We're not going to speak specifically about the Day of Atonement. We'll save that for Wednesday. Leviticus chapter 16. Let's look at the description of how atonement was to be kept. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 1. Now the Lord God spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. So the Holy of Holies, this special place inside the tabernacle, was reserved for just the high priest. And we're going to see that here as we continue. But it was a special place that only the high priest could access once a year. Just once a year. And the events, as you will read when you read through chapter 16, as perhaps you will do in preparation for the Feast of Atonement, the events were very specific. And very precise. 
Lives were on the line here to adhere to the instructions. God was very clear as we read that. Lest he die. If he does not follow this, the high priest will die. So lives are on the line here to follow all of these precise instructions, letter by letter and line by line. Because, why was it so important? Because Yahweh would appear. The only time in the year that Yahweh would appear above the mercy seat to his people. And we see, we won't take time to do that, but we can see the many offerings that are being off, that are required here. There was a young bull which was offered for the sins of Aaron and his household. A young bull just for the high, the high priest and his house. There's a ram as part of a burnt offering. And there are holy garments which must be worn by the high priest. Then dropping down to verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. So we can see the importance of this day. We can see what God is expecting, the the outcome that is going to be here, that for Aaron, for his specific household, and for all Israel will have their sins atoned for on this day. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. So we see here, we've got the blood of the bull for Aaron and his household. We've got the blood of the goat, the one goat, for the sins of the nation. You can read, take some time in your preparation, verses 20 to 28. We won't read that specifically, but we see the rest of the ceremony. We see the placing of the sins that were relieved by the blood of the goat, the dead goat, placed on the head of the live goat. We see it released into the wilderness. We see the various steps of cleaning up, the burning of the clothes, etc., as you'll read through there. And then we come down to the purpose of all of this in verse 29. This shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. And the priest, who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place, shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes, the holy garments. Then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. This shall be a lasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins 
once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. The purpose, and I'm sure we'll cover various other aspects of the Day of Atonement, so we won't get off onto needless tangents at this point. But the purpose was that once a year, the sins of the nation would be forgiven. Once a year, Yahweh would appear in the Holy of Holies and forgive the sins of his chosen people, Israel. Consider the depths of preparation that were required for such an important day. There was no possible way they could just show up on the tenth day and make this solemn event without considerable preparation in advance. We can see with the blowing of the trumpet to begin the month how this practice through the Jews, not consecrated as holy the entire month by God, but we can see how their practice that this became a holy month. We can see how they would take and and take these days and take these ten days and make this festival of awe, these days of repentance. We can see how that would be possible in practice. Let's go to Deuteronomy 12, just to be clear about something. Deuteronomy chapter 12. Verse 29. Deuteronomy 12, we'll begin in verse 29. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you'd go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them. After they are destroyed from before you, and you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord, which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. And you shall not add to it, nor take away from it. God is clear that no other days can be made holy. But keeping his feasts, as we talked about, takes preparation. From the initial call of the trumpet on day one, signifying the start of the seventh month, and the, be- and the beginning of the last days, the last phase, sorry, of the holy days of worship. From that initial trumpet call, through to the intense preparation, both physically, as we read in Leviticus 16, and spiritually, Joel 2 and his call to repentance, and calling the fast and the sacred assembly, both physically and spiritually, culminating in the annual release from the sin from sin of the entire nation. We can see how this takes preparation. And we talked a little bit more in detail about preparation last time. Finishing, as we read, with the preparation of the physical tabernacles needed to keep the final fall harvest feast. Factor in travel to Jerusalem, the bringing of the tithes, and all those details that we discussed last time, we can see the depths of preparation that it takes to keep the fall feasts. While sanctified holy time is limited to the specific days God commands, we cannot just show up on these days unprepared and expect to get full value from them, spiritually and physically. Physically today, keeping the Day of Atonement takes preparation. There are many that I know that need to wean themselves off of things like coffee well in advance 
so that their keeping of the Day of Atonement is a positive one. For keeping of the other days, keeping of all the days, but specifically the Feast of Tabernacles, preparing to take more than a week off from school or work takes physical preparation. The financial preparation that it takes throughout the year through the application of the tithing system takes preparation. Again, much of this we covered before. If we spend this much time preparing physically all month, it stands to reason that we should also be preparing spiritually all month too. Because the plan of God, as we has been well detailed through the work of all of the youth study teachers, is one continuous narrative that culminates, the entire plan culminates in the fulfillment of these days. Let's now take a little bit of time to look forward into the fulfillment of, the day, into the fulfillment of these days and make the connection to how we keep it today. We already briefly looked into the future when we read the account of Christ's return in the Gospel of Matthew. Let's, go, let's begin in Daniel chapter 2 and look forward to the fulfillment of these days. And then we'll make the connection. Daniel chapter 2. Our first glimpse of the fulfillment of these days comes from Nebuchadnezzar's dream. His dream finishing all of the kingdoms, the empirical kingdoms, beginning with Babylon, and as the youth are clearly well-versed, proceeding through the four kingdoms, concluding with the kingdom of God that will overthrow all the kingdoms of this world and will reign forever. Let's look in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. Cutting into the context for time here. And in the days of those of these kings, again the various, the specifically the kings of the Roman Empire, which fell on the back of and took over from the various other empires that we're very familiar with. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all of these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So again, a glimpse into the future, we see that the kingdom of God, set up by Jesus Christ, will stamp out all other kingdoms. Let's go to Daniel 7. Pick up a little bit more information of how the plan of God will be fulfilled with these fall festivals. Daniel chapter 9, sorry, Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. And we see a description of Belshazzar's dream of the end of the world's kingdoms. And we'll pick it up here in verse 9. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery steam stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, 
and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and the kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. All peoples. And again, we know, as seasoned Christians, that's what the fulfillment of the fall days are about. They're about God's plan being opened up to all people. His dominion, the dominion of the Son of Man, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is the one, the one, which shall not be destroyed. And we see, as we go through the prophet Daniel, uh, how all the other king, kingdoms were destroyed. We see how Persia destroyed Babylon. And then we know through the historical record how Greece did the same to Persia, how Rome did the same to Greece. But this kingdom will be the one that will not be destroyed. Now let's look at verse 15. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. And then dropping down, you can take time to read the rest of the account there. Dropping down to verse 26. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Again, a little more of the description of subduing Satan and his kingdoms. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. And his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. So Daniel has poured out his account here. And then he says, this is the end of the account. And as for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Daniel was shaken to the core at the events that would take place when Christ returns to overthrow the governments of Satan. He, was, he got it down, but it, the way he describes it here, it was all he could do to get it down on paper because he was so shaken by it. Let's consider now how John saw these events unfold in his dream. Let's begin in Revelation chapter 11. And again, we're looking forward into the future to see the fulfillment of these days. We're going to compare it to the historical record that we have both within the Bible and without. And then we'll make a connection. So we'll begin in Revelation chapter 11. And we begin here with the future coming of Christ, what we heard Pastor Smith talk about on Monday. Verse 15, Revelation 11. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come. Because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead, that they should be judged. 
and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. So again, a lot more of the description of what is the heavenly signs and the wonders and what the, the world will be like when Christ comes. We see that listed there. Then, we won't take time to read chapter 12 and the, the sub- subsequent chapters, but for a while the story moves back in time to the separation of Lucifer from God, his casting out from heaven, the Lamb, the church, and all the end-time events that will lead up to his return that we just started reading about in chapter 11. Now let's go to chapter 19. Chapter 19. As we take some time to read here, we see that the events we celebrate, the events that we celebrate, that we foreshadow, and that we worship God for on these annual holy days are part of one grand narrative. And again, it's important that we continue to understand that. One plan of salvation, one grand plan of salvation, culminating at the end of these days with the kingdom of God, which are the final two chapters of Revelation, which we won't get to today. But this is one story made up of many events. Let's see how John continues to paint this picture for us. Verse 11 of 19, chapter 19. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we see how Christ comes not with a sword, not with peace, but with a sword at his second coming. We see how he fulfills what Daniel talked about. We see how he fulfills what he himself talked about in Matthew 24. Then, verse 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So again, he's not coming with harps and peace. He's coming, and Satan has one last revolt to come against him. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And remember where we're going to be. Remember, and when he comes down, we will rise in the air, all the, saint, all the first fruits, and we will meet him. Those who are dead will have their spiritual bodies adorned. Those who are alive 
Our bodies will fall off and we will possess our spiritual bodies. And then Christ goes to war. And he's not going to go to war alone. We will be there with the armies of heaven fighting with him. And how, whatever respect, he needs our help. Then the beast, verse 20, was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which preceded him, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Then, same image, same, same vision, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So once the beast and the false prophet are, 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 are defeated, comes one final war, one final battle against Satan himself. And he is simply grabbed, and, and he is put down. He laid hold of the dragon. There's, there's no war here. Christ now grabs hold of the dragon. No, the angel, sorry. The angel grabs hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and the judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their forehead or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Again, that's, there's, my, my, uh, my version here does not have the parentheses that yours does, which sort of sets that apart. And differentiates that for the, the millennium from the last great day. Verse 6. Blessed and holy is he who is part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison And will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Then they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Don't get, we'll get on, don't, we won't get off on that tangent. That's a sermon for another time. It doesn't, mess, it doesn't mean what it says there. It's, there's certainly the beast and the false prophet will not burn forever and ever. We've covered that before. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his work. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. 
When Christ returns, as we've read this account, we see how the story picks up the pace and takes place at breakneck speed, culminating in the entire world becoming at one with God. We read this account. We weren't just reading a couple of chapters here, but we see how the, the fulfillment of the fall holy days were captured in that entire account. The return of Christ, the putting away of Satan, the millennial setting, the release of, of Satan for a short period, and then how the rest of the world would have their opportunity to learn the truth of God and to have an opportunity for salvation. So as we are now six days into the seventh month, we should be in full festival mode. As we read this account, this was one great big story that covers all the fall festivals. Holy time is set by God and is very specific. Day 1, day 10, day 15, and day 22. Plus the Sabbaths that are in between. We go about our regular duties after we left trumpets. We had four days of regular duties, work, school, regular life. But we should never be out of festival mindset. When we came to trumpets, that starts the keeping of the fall festival season. And we should be in full festival mindset the entire time. We should not go to trumpets and then go back and completely forget about trumpets. This is in a, because the entire fulfillment of these days is a grand narrative of the coming of Christ and the putting down of Satan and the millennial setting and all others who did not have a chance to learn of Christ being given a chance. Let's conclude with something very interesting that happened at the end of the festival celebrations of Ezra, Nehemiah, and God's people who, re, who finished rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Let's go back to Nehemiah chapter 9 to see something very interesting. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, two days after the eighth day, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting, in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and their iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day. And for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. This was not a commanded fast. But as a group, that year, after so much change, after so much emotion, after so much learning, after so much worship, they finished off the season by fasting together because it was a season to them. They started on the first day. And truth was opening up to their minds, and they just couldn't get enough. So when they came to the end, they held a fast day together. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, holy, a holy consecrated fast. It wasn't commanded by God. But for them, it was important.
They sang praises to God for their redemption. You can read the rest of chapter 9 and see the, the praises to their God for their redemption. They then signed a covenant to continue to obey God as he had instructed their fathers under Moses so many years before. Turn to chapter 10, just flip the page. A couple of pages, chapter 10, verse 28. This again was on the 24th day. They were fasting. They were singing praises. They were signing a covenant. Now the rest of the people, verse 28, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, and all those who had separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, and everyone who had knowledge and understanding, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his ordinances and his statutes. They signed a covenant to continue to obey God as he had instructed their forefathers under Moses so many years before. This fast, while not a command, was a fitting conclusion for them to more than three weeks of festival keeping. The people of Israel, as we made note throughout the year in the youth studies, apart from selected patriarchs, selected prophets, small groups and pockets of people who recommitted themselves to God's system of worship at various points through history, the people of Israel, apart from those, the, those small few, did not really understand the plan of God as outlined in his holy day system of worship. This is why they kept the ten-day feast of awe. Beginning on the Feast of Trumpets with a final call to repentance, concluding ten days later on the Day of Atonement with a final judgment from God. They kept it that way because they didn't understand God's massive plan of salvation. But there is a takeaway from how they kept it. There is a takeaway that we can take from how they observed the holy days of God, not in a right way, not in a way that was commanded by God for these 10 days of this 10 days of awe. But there is a takeaway. We are blessed to know the plan of God goes much deeper than that. The plan of God is so much deeper than a 10 day call to final judgment. It is all about all of mankind becoming at one with God. The entire plan is about atonement. The entire plan. The ultimate prize, the destination, is the kingdom of God. Salvation through Passover is the means by which we get there. God's laws and his Holy Spirit, the new covenant, how it's written on our hearts, offered to us on the day of Pentecost, they outline how we will conduct ourselves when we get there. Accepting the sacrifice of Christ and receiving his Holy Spirit sets us apart for inclusion. But why? Is so that we can all be at one with God. While we are preparing ourselves to keep the Day of Atonement this week, bear in mind that the entire fall festival plan is really a season of atonement. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.